Well, you've made it. One month to live, and none of us have died. That should be encouraging. I'm glad nobody died in midway through this because uh, the elders would have been prophets and I'm sure we would have gotten a lot of flack uh, because uh, we don't know when, of course, any of us are going to pass away. But we've finished this series uh, looking at how we need to make a difference knowing that our days are short and uh, we never know the hour or the day of our departure, whether it is through death or the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to live holy and upright lives in a wicked and depraved generation. And that's what this whole series has been about. Living as if we have one month to live. And asking the question, if that is the case, if I don't know how long I have to live, then how should my life, what should my life look like, and what are the things that should be a part of it? And we've looked throughout this series at at Jesus, and how Jesus, first of all, lived passionately. How he loved completely, how he learned humbly, and how he left boldly. And putting those things all together, we see that God desires for us in our life here on earth to be a preparation for that which we'll be a part of in eternity. The reason why God calls us to holiness today is because one day we will be completely holy The reason why God calls us to be Christ-like today is because one day will come where we will see him face to face and we will be like him. And so God is preparing us for that which we'll be a part of in eternity. But before that time comes, the scriptures tell us that there will be a judgment seat for all believers. And that that time will not be a time where uh, we will just be asked, are you a believer or not? But the works and the things that we have done for Christ here on earth in the body will be put to a test. And my question is for you today is, will you pass that test? Now, it won't be the question of passing the test of your salvation. But will you have lived a life that looks like Christ? Will you live a life that will be uh, filled with pleasing works? That because of your relationship with Christ, out of a life of gratitude, you live out a life of good works for Christ. Will that be seen on that day? Or will there be many regrets that will come along the way? If I was to take just a simple poll this morning, I'm sure that all of us would say, we want to have confidence on the day of judgment. We want to stand before Jesus Christ on that great day and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servants. But if you live any life like my own, I recognize that there's a lot of things that are going to be burned away on that great day. There will be a lot of things that I will have regretted investing my time in. And the last lesson of this one month to live, I want to look at living a no regrets life living differently today so that we can stand with confidence on that day of that great judgment before Jesus Christ, with confidence, not regretting that we wasted our life on the things that are temporal instead of the things that which are eternal. Some time ago, I I had uh, clipped out an article from the uh, Tacoma, Washington newspaper about a basset hound named Tattoo. Tattoo didn't intend to go on an evening run, but when his owner shut the dog's leash in the car door and took off for a drive, Tattoo had no choice but to run. Noticing what was going on, a police officer finally pulled the driver over. 
The officer commented, that basset hound was picking up its feet and putting them down as fast as he could. Amazingly, the short canine reached a speed of over 25 miles per hour, rolling over a couple times in the process, but being uninjured throughout the whole scenario. This is the amazing story of a dog, but for many, as I thought about that, I wrote, this is a lot like my life. You see, we want to live a no-regrets life, but there's something that grabs us and takes a hold of us and throws us to deal with the temporary, to deal with the things of this world. We get inundated, uh, whether it's by our choice or not, to have to run a mile a minute to accomplish that which has no eternal value whatsoever. I wonder what Tattoo was thinking. I wonder if he was asking the question, someone or something is holding my leash and I can't break free. My life is out of control. Uh, Maybe he was saying, I'm just a little dog. How can anybody expect me to do all of this? I'm sure he was asking the question, that car is so big and too strong that I'll never be able to stop it on my own. So I need to run or be run over. I feel like I'm living without a choice. And for Tattoo, it was about surviving, not thriving, that became the characteristic of his life that night. For many of us, we are surviving in the world of the temporary instead of thriving, living out the eternal in our lives. And for many of us, we are leashed to incredible things of bondage, whether it's of our own choice or because of our unwillingness to break free of our calendar or our schedule or the things of this world. And instead of thriving in the eternal, we live one day at a time, even though we know there's a day coming where Christ will come and take us to be with him. And on that great and glorious day, he will ask the question, how did you use the one life you had to show the world who I was? On that day, I hope we could live with no regrets. As I thought about that, I looked to the life of a man who I believe lived with no regrets. His name is the Apostle Paul. We focused in on Jesus, but on this last week, I want to look at one who applied the life of Jesus to his life and lived differently as a result. And so I want us to look at Philippians chapter 3, starting with verses 12. And we're going to go through chapter 4, verse 1. So I'd ask that you would stand for the reading of God's word as we look to this text. This is what Paul says later on in his life while imprisoned. He says, not that I've already obtained all this or have been already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which, for Christ, which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do... Forgetting what is behind and straining forward towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make it clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is their destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. 
their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Father God, we come before you, and as we close this series, I ask that we would make some real changes in our lives to understand that this is a life about stewardship and that we are called to give you all that we are, to uh, lay aside the things of this world, the things, as we learned about last week, that so easily entangle us, the things that hinder us from a vibrant and healthy relationship with you. So that, Lord, on that day of judgment, on that day that we see you face to face, we will know that we gave our all, that we invested the best of our time and the best of our energy to that which would last for eternity. Lord, challenge us today as we look to the example of your great servant, Paul, who looked and desired not to disqualify himself for the race, but to finish that race and to do it glorifying and honor you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I have two points this morning. And, and I want to go through each of them relatively quickly because there are a lot of points and I don't want to scare you um, as to the amount of time that we invest in each of them. But the first thing that I want us to look at is I want us to notice that a life of regret, we must first of all see that a life of regret comes when we focus in on certain things. I'm sure that you have lived with regret in your life. I know for me, I have a, a bad uh, part of me, if you will, that, that lives regret. Uh, I got to be honest with you, the hardest day for me uh, in the week is Mondays, and it's not because it's the start of a new work week, but as a preacher, there's great regret about the things that I said from the pulpit. I can never remember exactly what I said, but there's always there's one or two phrases or things that I say that I'm like, boy, I wish I wouldn't have said that. But for many of us, we live regret not because of maybe some, some dumb things that we say in front of a crowd, but because of decisions, because of directions that we have gone in. And as a result of that, we find ourselves paralyzed from living in the present and, of course, in the future. Now, Paul addresses in this letter to the Philippians that he has a lot uh, to be proud of. Notice right before our text in verse, uh, let's look here, at... Um, Verses, uh, let's see, 5, starting in verse 4, all the way to verse 11. He says, if anyone thinks that he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. What Paul is saying is, is that I've got every reason to talk about the great life that I've lived, all the wonderful things that I've been a part of. And Paul did have a lot of things that he could be excited about. But he says in there that all of these things are rubbish. They're garbage. And I want us to look at our life because he names a couple things. He talks about the tribe that he's a part of. He talks about when he was circumcised. He talks about being an Israelite and a Pharisee. And and, and we have a difficulty to applying those things because those aren't all that important or fame worthy in our lives. But what are some of the things that if we live striving for those things that will bring us regret? The first one is if we strive for a certain position. I shared with my small group this last week that uh, I love reading biographies of presidents. 
And in almost every biography that is written about any president, what you will see after the man has served as president is a life of regrets and sadness. Whether or not his presidency was good or bad, it is because the idea that he has reached the pinnacle of all jobs, of all authority, of all power, that then he goes back, whether it's after four years or eight years, to being just a normal guy. Maybe he'll do some speaking. Maybe he'll go and, and be a part of a peace plan here and there. But he goes from having, if you will, the world at his disposal to nothing. And there's some of us that are desiring for that next position, that next uh, opportunity up the corporate ladder, that next opportunity to uh, be known for what we do in our work or in our achievements. And what we're going to learn is that it doesn't mean anything because at the end of the day, that job will be gone. None of us are going to have the jobs that we have now in eternity. We'll be too busy worshiping and praising God and doing everything that God calls us to. We won't be in the job and in the field that we find ourselves in today. And so what a life of regret that spending all your time and all your energy trying to climb that corporate ladder only to learn on the day of your death that it really didn't matter. That doesn't mean you don't work. That doesn't mean you don't provide for your family. There's something different about being a good employee and striving with all your heart towards a position. Throw up the next one there for me. How about possessions? Uh, We spend a lot of time uh, buying and purchasing and, and collecting and amassing for ourselves all kinds of possessions. And one of the greatest, I think, things that comes out of a time like we're living in today is we learn that our possessions won't help us in the day of want. Our possessions won't help us uh, when, when we lose our jobs. Our possessions won't help us uh, when our marriages are falling apart or we're having difficult at home. And yet uh, the American culture says, uh, he who has the most toys wins. And that's a part of who we are as Christians as well because we fall prey to that kind of life. We need to have a bigger house because our neighbors have a bigger house. We need to have a nicer car because the neighbors got a nicer car. And we go and we try to keep up with the Joneses and and it doesn't work. And the scriptures tell us that at the end of the day, you're not going to take anything with you. The Old Testament writings say, naked you came into this world and naked you shall return. You won't take that big TV with you. You won't take that car. Have you ever seen a U-Haul behind a hearst? No. You're not taking any of it with you. And so what a life of regret it would be to stand before Jesus, investing all of your time and your energy in the purchasing of things that will be burned away on the day of judgment. The next one we see is pleasures. Some of us are investing our time and our energy on pleasing self. And we can do this through a lot of different things. We can invest so much time and energy uh, in things that make us feel good. There are people right now who are investing their Sunday uh, dedicated to football. There's nothing wrong with football, but, uh, but a whole day, even the people in the NFL, I'm sure, don't desire for you to be a part of every moment of football. Maybe they do. But, but they would be the only ones, and it's only because of their uh, financial uh, increase that they would get as a result of that. But we invest all this time on our pleasure. And for many of us, we will look back with regret because we invested so much time on ourselves and on what we desired. 
We do this with our bodies, with what pleases us. There's no doubt in this place today there are people who regret uh, some of the uh, advancing relationships that they had prior to marriage because of pleasure, because of pursuing the pleasure or, or pleasing someone in, in an inappropriate relationship that you have regret and say, boy, I wish I would have not done that. I wish I wouldn't have been a part of that. Finally, uh, there's popularity. Popularity. I've told you this before, uh, not, not that long after my brother passed away as, as I was a freshman, and when you have someone die, and my brother was a popular kid, you become pretty popular in your own right. And there is one thing I regret in high school, and that's the following. I had two very close friends. One's name was Matt, the other name was Brian. And these two close friends were friends I had all the way through elementary school, and we were not the popular kids. We sat by ourselves at lunch. We, we, we did things on a Friday night by ourselves. And when I became popular, or at least I thought I'd become popular, because of the death of my brother, I didn't have time for those two guys. And you know, the things that I regret is giving up on that relationship because I gave up on it for the sake of everybody liking me. And what I learned not too long afterwards, probably around my junior year, was that popularity had all gone and those friends had moved on. And so we strive and we go after all this fame and, and being well-known in the community and well-known in the neighborhood and we do things that we never think we would do for the sake of people liking us. And I will tell you, you live that kind of life and you will regret it. Now you say, Tim, okay, we'll come up with some biblical advice to this or biblical uh, scripture that would lay forth uh, that this is true. And I'll give you a homework assignment. Read the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 1 through chapter 5. He addresses all of them. Solomon, a king. Solomon, the wisest man to walk on the earth. And he says, man, when I gave myself to work, I learned that at the end of the day, it was meaningless because I was going to leave it to someone else. Even though I was known as a king, it was meaningless because I'm just going to die at some point. I'll be forgotten before my body grows cold in the grave. And time in and time out, Solomon says, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. And some of you, my friends, are chasing after the wind. The gospel is hitting you right in the face, and it's telling you to die to self, and you're saying, but you know what? This is more important than you are, Jesus, and so I'm going to live for this. Thank you for your salvation, but I've got some things that I want to do in my life before it's done. And I will tell you, when you chase after the wind, you will find out on that day, that great day where you stand before Jesus Christ, that it was all meaningless. It was all meaningless. You chased after things that are going to burn up. Paul says these things are rubbish. They're garbage. And so what does Paul do? Paul says, I'm not going to put my life focused in on those things. I did, and it led me to persecuting Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. It led me to give the order to kill some of the greatest Christians in church history. And I'm sure he lived with that regret all of his life. But he says, not anymore. Ever since I met Jesus on that road to Damascus, I'm going to strive for some things. And that's the next thing we need to look at. The next thing we need to see is, is move on to point two there. It's not a life of regret, but a life of no regrets involves some things. And you're going to see seven things 
in this text that I want to highlight uh, in regards uh, to this life of no regrets. So if we want to be confident on the day of judgment, if we want to be confident when it comes to how we're living our lives, if we want to live out what Jesus, how Jesus would live as he did, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil, this is how we do it. And the first way we do it is by creating in ourselves a spirit of dissatisfaction. Notice what the text says. Not that I've already obtained all this, Or have already been made perfect. Now understand this. The first essential to a solid spiritual life of no regrets may surprise you. But in order for you to move forward, we must be dissatisfied with where we are right now. Now remember, Paul had seen some amazing things. had been a part of amazing experiences. Paul, unlike you and I, met Jesus Christ personally on the road to Damascus. The text in uh, his writings to the church at Corinth says that he would be once caught up into the third heaven where he would hear inexpressible things. This same Apostle Paul who wrote much of the New Testament, who preached incredible sermons, even when he preached uh, for too long and a person falls out of a window because they had fallen asleep listening to him preach, he doesn't leave them dead, but he raises him from the dead. This Paul is an amazing man. And yet, what does he say? After walking with Christ, we believe for about 20 to 25 years when he pens the words of Philippians, he says, I have not yet attained it. But Paul, you're known probably, you're one of the most well-known Christians in all of the known world. How can you say that you have not attained it? What are you wanting to do? What are you wanting to be a part of? He says, All of this is just the beginning. It's a journey. It's a process. Because Paul states in verses 10 and 11, look at what he says there. He says it's not about what he has done, but it's about knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. What Paul wants to do is he wants to know Christ in an experiential way. I want to know him. I want to be intimate in my knowledge with him. I want to have the closest relationship I can. And I'm not there yet. I'm partway through the journey, but I don't want to stop. Because the more I spend time with Jesus, the more I want to know him in a deeper way. Notice what he says. He says that he has not yet obtained it. It means that he has not fully apportioned or applied God's promises to himself. That's important for us. Because some of us think that the moment of our justification, we have gotten everything that God is going to give us. Now that's it. And some of you are living the Christian life saying, that was it. The glory days of my Christian life were when I was in a Sunday school class when I was seven or eight years old. And God, man, he blew it all with me, and it's good because now I get to go to heaven. But think about that. If that was God's only involvement in our lives, and he would have taken us home the moment we came to know him as our Savior. But he doesn't. Because Christ wants us to be sanctified. He wants to make us like him. He wants to watch us and interact with us and guide us and lead us to take no to sin and to turn to him each and every day. 
to deny ourselves and to take up that cross so that we will learn what it means to be like him because on that great and glorious day when we are glorified, that we will understand that all our work was going towards a point. But this is what Paul says. He says, I have not been yet made perfect. Paul understands his position in Christ that while he is justified, that he recognizes that even though he was a powerful force and figure, he says in 1 Timothy 1.15 that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Some of us have been Christians for so long that we think that we are the ones who are righteous. And so we're satisfied and we look down our noses at people uh, who are struggling in their sin and say, well, I don't have that kind of issue. And little do we forget about the grace of God who saved us, wretched and filthy sinners. There's an old uh, story or myth that is spoken about in Greek mythology, speaking of the greatest sculptor uh, on uh, the earth. And he had sculpted the most wonderful uh, sculpture known to man. And his sculptor had a teacher, a master sculptor, that uh, grew leery and grew frustrated with his student who would day in and day out after sculpting this masterpiece would just sit down and marvel at the piece that he had made. Knowing that the man was no good because he thought that he had arrived, he thought that he had done his best work, the teacher did something of great wisdom. He took a mallet and he busted up the sculpture. And the student comes and says, wait a minute, why would you do such a thing? That was the best I could ever do. And the teacher said, that is only what you may know. But until you go and leave what is behind and strive, little will you know if that's your best or if it's just plainly mediocre. Some of us are living mediocre lives and we're satisfied with that. Some of us are living lives that show no faith at all and we're okay with that. And Paul says, I have not gotten there yet and I'm not going to, I'm not going to stop until I do. Dissatisfaction is the first one. Now notice the second one. And that is devotion. Paul says in verse 12, he says, Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. The tendency for some of us is just to then give up. Well, if this isn't good enough, well, it's too hard, and so I'm going to quit. And Paul doesn't say that. He says, I'm going to press on. That word uh, press on in the original Greek means to pursue as a hunter. A focus on a certain target. And that you are unyielding in your pursuit of that. Now I think it's, it's, it's a bit ironic that he says that he wants to press on towards the goal. But in verse 6, the same word or the same phrase, press on, is used. Look at verse 6 and what he used to press on towards. In verse 6, it says, As for zeal, persecuting the church, the same zeal that he had in persecuting the church as Saul from Tarsus, he now says, I am going to pursue Jesus with all of my heart. I wrote in my notes, what would happen to Village Bible Church if we as a people started to pursue Jesus more than the things that we love so much outside of church. If some of us would pursue Jesus like we pursue sports, God would be glorified and lives would be changed. If some of us would pursue Jesus like we pursue our jobs, the amazing things that would take place. 
Paul says with the same devotion that I used to find myself living in sin, I'm turning away from that, and I'm going to start living with a singular devotion for Jesus Christ. You want to live a life of no regrets? You start devoting yourself to the cause of Christ, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love what Hosea 6.3 says, Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on. Let us pursue the process of acknowledging him. Some of us are passive in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, we we aren't impacted in, in many ways. We come, we hear sermons, we leave, and there's no change. There's no change. Not because God isn't all that he says he is, but we choose to acknowledge other things than God himself. The idea of taking hold literally means to take eagerly or to possess with great passion. Jesus, it says, had taken hold of him. We know that. Acts chapter 9 says that he was slammed to the ground. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And now with that same force, Paul says, I want to grab a hold of Jesus Christ. My favorite preacher is Charles Spurgeon, and I love his words that he shares here. He gives uh, the phrase, I hold and I am held. With the same energy and the same pursuit that Jesus has for us, Spurgeon and Paul both said, I want to hold him like that as well. So the question is, are you giving maximum effort in your spiritual life? Or are you a Christian who's on cruise control? Paul says, I'm devoted. Notice the third thing, the direction. In verse 13, he says, Brothers, I do not consider myself to yet have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. He says, one thing I do. Now notice what he does. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I want us to look at that for a moment because here we see that he has not taken hold of it yet. But now he's straining forward. Again, we see this devotion, this idea of I'm going after that which Christ has taken hold of me. What Jesus has done in my life, I'm going to pursue it, not so I can save myself, but so that I can experience all of Jesus that I could. When I was dating Amanda... We were at Wabansi together. And the first semester, my mom enrolled me in classes, and so I was in all kinds of mom classes that a mom would enroll her son into. But the second semester, I enrolled in anything possible that I could if they would let me with Amanda. I wanted to be where she was. And so you should see my college transcript. It's all over the place. Now, why would you take... I had no desire to do anything in, in, in broadcasting. Amanda was a broadcasting major at first. And so I took all this broadcasting, and the guy's counselor says, well, this isn't in your major. I said, my major's changed. He says, what is it? I says, it's Amanda Masenko. <laughs> Whatever she does, I do. And yet for some of us, we need to pursue Jesus that way. Jesus, where you go, I'm going. Jesus, you're there, I'm there. Whatever you're doing, Jesus, I want to be a part of it. I want to experience you every moment of the day, in every circumstance of the day. I want to be there. And Paul says something has to happen. 
He says, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward towards what is ahead. He had a single focus. He lived out what David wrote in Psalm 86, 11, Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Friends, what is the one thing that you do? Paul says, there's one thing that I do. Too many of us are involved in too many things. We're a jack of all trade, master of none when it comes to our focus and our desire in involving ourselves with any one particular thing. I looked up this phrase, one thing, and several times in scriptures, this phrase, one thing, comes. Psalm 27, 4, one thing I ask of the Lord, that is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Do you pursue that one thing? Jesus would say in Mark 10, 21, that he looked up at a man and he loved him. And he says, one thing you lack, he said, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Luke 10, 42 says, but only one thing is needed and Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. And then one of my favorite passages of Scripture, John 9, 25. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. What one thing are you pursuing? Is it Jesus? We call ourselves Christians, and what that should mean is that we pursue one thing, Christ and Him alone. I love what John MacArthur says about this. He says, just do one thing right in your life, and you'll, always, you'll find yourself way ahead of most people. Is Jesus the one thing that you're pursuing? Now notice, to be able to pursue one thing, you have to get behind, get some things behind you. I want you to write this in your outline. Uh, the right direction also means getting rid of some things. And I want you to remember that to pursue Jesus in that way means you've got to get rid of the garbage of good stuff. There's garbage in our life of good stuff. We spent plenty of time on this last week, but Paul is saying that if we're going to forget and live towards God, it means forgetting the good stuff in our past. Paul had a great resume, and he says, I'm not going to live that way. We've talked about this over and over again. Some of us are living with the trophies of yesteryear because that is where we found victory. And Paul says, forget those things. Those were great when you were in high school. Those were great when you were in grade school. But now you need to press on. Because whatever you did back in those days, whatever you did in your youth group, whatever you did in Awana, whatever you did back in the day was great and wonderful, but let's move on from those elementary things and strive to that which is now important. And so we've got to get rid of the good stuff that's in our past. We've got to forget it. We can't live in the past. But notice we can't live in the light of the good stuff. We can't live in light of the guilty stuff. Some of us are not living for Christ with that devotion. Because every time we start living for Christ, someone or something reminds us of the garbage that was in our past. Growing up in the church and becoming a man in this church was difficult because every time I thought I was becoming an adult, someone would remind me of what I was like when I was a kid. It was tough. So we got to put those things behind us. In your cars, you have uh, a couple things in front of you. In every car, you have a big windshield. It's telling you where you are going. 
But in the middle of that big windshield and on the side of each of your sides of your car are two or three little mirrors. You put those three mirrors together and they pale in comparison to that which the windshield size is. And I think that's an important reminder for us as believers. As believers, we are called to look by faith of what is in front of us. And every once in a while, to be reminded of what's going on behind us. Now, if we live our lives like driving while looking in the rearview mirror, our life will lead to destruction. And so what we need to do as people of faith is look straight ahead. And every once in a while, just remember that which was behind. Some of us as Christians are living in the rearview mirror, whether for the good or the things that bring guilt. And Paul says, I'm moving forward. It's the direction that I'm heading in. A poem was once said, Look not back on yesterday so full of failure and regret. Look ahead and seek God's way, remembering all sins confess you must forget. Number four, determination. Paul not only turns his dissatisfaction to devotion, he's heading in the right direction, but notice the determination. To press on has the idea of intensely pursuing the prize, of bearing down in order to win. That's what he says in verse 4. I press on now towards that goal. Now there are two extremes that you can take in regards to pressing on. There can be uh, an issue when it comes to determination on either side. And the best way to describe it is, is boats on water. The first thing that you can do is you can lack all determination and you're a raft. A raft just sits on the water. It doesn't do anything. It just kind of just goes wherever it will. And some of us as believers are rafts when it comes to our spiritual walk today. There's no real direction. There's no real drive. We're just kind of floating along. The other extreme is that we are a, a rowboat. A rowboat's not much different than a raft. But a rowboat, for it to move in any direction, has to have a person doing the rowing. And some of us are so determined, that we get so angry with the rafts in our world, that what we begin to do is, well, I'll take care of it myself. Who needs God? I'll just row myself. I, I can do it. I don't need God to tell me what direction to go in. I'll row my own direction. What Paul is saying here, I think, is best illustrated in that of a sailboat. Because we do have responsibility when it comes to our Christian life. But we can't do it on our own. And so what does a sailboat do? A sailboat is totally dependent on the wind. But it can help set the direction. As we put the wind in the right place for the wind to take it, it will be set in a direction that God will honor. We need to become sailboats. Not trying to do it on our own but positioning our lives so that God can get the most speed and velocity out of us in our Christian life. David Livingston, a pioneer missionary to Africa, returned to Great Britain and was asked, what will you do now after all that you have done? I love his response. I'm ready to go anywhere provided that it goes forward. Some of us need to get moving. We've been sitting on the sidelines for far too long. And so we need to begin looking to the future. It says in 1 John, we've read this before, 1 John 2, 3, 2 and 3, that as we look to the hope that we have in Christ's return, that we will purify ourselves. Some of us need to look that there's a day coming. 
And in light of that day, we, need, we ought to purify ourselves. Number five, I've got a couple more and we'll be done. Number five, it involves discipline. Look at verses 15 and 16. All of us who are mature should take a view of things. We need to understand something. This life is our responsibility. And Paul is saying that if you want to be known as a mature individual in Christ, that you should be running this way. You should be living this way. We can't worry about anybody else. Notice what he says. And if at some point you think differently, that, that, that too, God will make clear to you. Only live up to what we have already attained. You can't run someone else's race. You have to have discipline to run the race that God has before you. And we worry so much about other people's responses, and we can't. We have to run the race that God has for us. It takes discipline each and every day saying, Lord, what do you have for me today? Number six, discipleship. In order to run the race, we must deepen our discipleship. In order to live a life that lacks regret, it involves we disciple. First of all, we are disciples of Jesus Christ. And in turn, as we are discipled by Jesus Christ, one day we will disciple others. Listen to what Paul says. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Some of us are just kind of just lollygagging around because there's no one in our lives who we can look to and say, I want to be like him. There are two men in my life that I want to be like, my dad and John Avery, my youth pastor. If I can attain to what they've attained, then I'm doing really well. Those two men are godly men. I wouldn't agree with everything that they do, and, and I wouldn't agree that they are perfect in any way, but their pursuit of God is, is something that I desire for. And so I want to be like that. But I also recognize that I cannot just be a disciple but that I also have to be a discipler. And so that my ministry is, is as I grow in my relationship with Jesus Christ, no matter what my age is, there's always someone who's running behind me, who's looking to me and saying, boy, I want to run like him. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And some of us are just kind of just, just living a life of, of, of no zeal because we don't see anyone in front of us and we're not looking because they're there nor are we thinking about the people behind us. Discipleship is the key. Discipleship involves two things. Number one, following the good examples of people around us. And number two, he says in the text, I don't have time to go into it, but to reject the bad examples and don't follow them. Understand this. Notice what he says. For as often as I've told you before, and now say it again with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now let's talk about what they do. Their, destruction, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. He says, and he goes on and he says, their mind is on earthly things. Some of us are being discipled, but we're being discipled towards the things of this world. And it feels good and it feels right. And the Bible says that that kind of pursuit leads to destruction. Now, it doesn't mean that you'll lose your salvation. But I believe at the end of the day, your life and all that you've done will be destroyed by fire. It will. All that you pursued, it'll be gone. Number seven, delight. Paul then changes. He says, I don't want to close on this note. 
I don't want to talk about uh, the idea of them focusing in on earthly things, but notice what he says to us. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Paul wants us to know that our, priority will deter, our priorities will be determined. I'm sorry. Our perspective will determine our priorities. And if you're just holding out, just trying to just hold out until the day that you die, you'll do nothing for the Lord. But if you look at eternity as being a time that will be so glorious and so wonderful, and that knowing that our involvement in our worship and time and eternity will, will be all very similar to a pursuit of following Jesus now, then we would follow Jesus with all of our hearts. One day we're going to be in heaven because that's our home. We're citizens of another place, so why do we take up so much of this world and try to live it up? Jesus is coming back, and we're told to eagerly await him. Because at that point, everything will be made right. Everything will be brought under his order. Because the best is yet to come. When I was a young boy, my dad told me at a fancy wedding reception that we were at that I needed to eat my meal. I didn't want to eat my meal. There were vegetables and and things that I didn't like. And I said, I don't want to eat it. Why do I have to eat it? And my dad, I remember, pointed to one of the forks, and there were a lot of forks, and I didn't know why there was, but there was a fork, and he said, because of that fork. And I said, Dad, why about, what's with that fork? And he said, because dessert's coming, and you want dessert, but you'll only be able to experience dessert if you experience the meal. And there are some things that you're going to have to swallow down hard. They're going to be difficult for you, But remember, dessert's coming. My brothers and sisters in Christ, some of us are enduring hardships. Life isn't easy. But Paul is here to tell you, I am here to tell you, don't forget the fork. Dessert is coming. And we have to swallow some things during our lives here on earth. But as as, uh, John prayed, these are light and momentary trials. And one day we will stand with Jesus and he'll wipe away every tear. The best is yet to come. So let me close with this. I got one minute, and I'm closing it in that. You want to ponder some things from this series? Remember this. Life is short. Live for eternity. It isn't about this life on earth. Much of it will be thrown away and burned. So start living for what matters. Number two, life as a believer is all about stewardship. God owns everything. He owns your life. You were bought with a price. And so what that means is he's your master. Live for him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this series. I thank you for your word. Lord, this has been a different series. We've not studied one particular book or one particular passage. But we've used all of scripture to understand this concept of stewardship that I think we needed to hear so badly. Father, I'm thankful for the wonderful reports that we are hearing 
of people making different decisions in light of what they're learning from you and the example of your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, let us not leave this teaching in just the series, in just this month, but that we would live this way until you call us home. Lord, I pray for us in this week to come that we would look at ways that we could start to live life without regret. Father, I pray that we would live like those who have gone before us, who knew there was something great that was promised and lived in light of it. Let us live in light of the hope that we have of eternity. And let that hope not be unrealized, but be realized in our today so that you are brought glory through all that we do. And so that one day we will stand before you and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the opportunity to live this life for you. And we pledge our hearts to it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.